Medicare for all. Your bros can suck my balls. Fuck your reply, guys. Please don't fuck your reply, guys. Just listen to Reply Guys. Hello and welcome back to Reply Guys. The leftist feminist comedy podcast for the rest of us. I am Kate Willett. And I'm Julia Clare. And um, I'm recording in a basement of a warehouse in Oakland before I fly back to California. So I'm so sorry if there's a little bit of uh, echo in my audio right now. Um, you before know? you fly back to New York, right? Yeah, I fly back to New York tomorrow, putting yeah. on um, two N95s on my face. And Hell just, yeah. Uh... <laughs> I'm letting it rip. Let's yeah, go. Um, so... Uh, you know, it's the anniversary of a very special uh, day <laughs> yesterday. First of all, we just want to say Happy New Year to our listeners. Thank you so much for another year of listening and supporting us. If you support our Patreon, we so appreciate it. It's not even funny. We love you so much. Um, Sorry, things have been a little chaotic. We are going to get back on our schedule. We we, uh, we sure will. Um but yes, as Kate alluded to, uh, yesterday was an anniversary for the history books, uh, the one-year anniversary of the January 6th insurrection at the Capitol, uh, one year ago today, um, and boy, were there some embarrassing things from the Democratic Party afoot. Dude, so they saying so I feel like people have probably seen going around on Twitter that there was a, a Hamilton Zoom. Yes. Yeah. And uh, like it a, was like a like song while Miranda and then the, the cast of Hamilton singing a song to commemorate. I'm not really sure what it had to do with anything. Uh, I don't I don't know either. I just know that anytime. Lynn Manuel Lynn, Lynn Manuel Miranda is involved. It is embarrassing. Yeah, I mean, to me, it's like it is. Man, okay, this guy. I thought I the the take that I thought was good on this was like that. You know, it's not just that it was like so fucking embarrassing. It was also just that it kind of like shows that they're they're actually not taking this very seriously. Like it's not, you know, the the underlying causes of this rally. There, nothing is is being um, not rally, but I get insurrection. Yeah, they're uh, they're not actually like taking any sort of meaningful action right now to you know, prevent this, something like this from happening again. And also like, you know, to just the insurgent right has so much power all over the country right now. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, it just it just kind of shows that they're not really taking anything seriously. There's two voting rights bills that are on the table right now that are extremely important that they could have used this day to draw attention to in January 6th. Like, yeah, there were a lot of racist small business owners and wackos and QAnon shaman and, you know, just in general, people who are the most unhinged people in the country, but they have real political power, like this Mm -hmm. urge to roll back election fairness to ensure that like right wing candidates win happening all over the country 19 states have passed super 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 restrictive voting measures in the past you know since january 6th last year and um i mean even including like eliminating drop-off boxes for absentee ballots like yeah in georgia you can't give people water Mm -hmm. in line that's illegal and they're fucking you know you i I don't know if you can give them deep fried oreos or something (laughs) Not water, um, but not you know, water. You got to give them uh, Cool Ranch Doritos and really yeah. suck all the water out of their bodies. Yeah, but I mean, there's just I mean, there's like this kind of uh, narrative that the right has that having fair elections where people can vote, like including, you know, absentee ballots and um, early voting. Like there's just this this movement, this like, quote unquote, stop the steal movement has actually been 
extraordinarily successful. Yeah. And, you know, Democrats aren't really, really, really doing much to to push back on this. I think so. The problem that we run into again and again is that the Democratic leadership in particular is just not uh, up to the task of the current moment. Um, and I think that actually the Lin-Manuel Miranda song that Pelosi introduced yesterday is really illustrative of that. It's, you know, uh, I didn't think that this, you know, uh, Biden and Kamala gave speeches and I thought those were like pretty perfunctory, fine, whatever. Well, she didn't. Um, she say that didn't it Kamala say that it was like a, a day like Pearl Harbor and September 11th? <laughs> well, I must have missed that. That's. Uh, I mean, <laughs> that's going to the opposite end of uh, yeah, of mean, really maybe overstating like the gravity of the moment. I mean, it is. It was like a major. It, I don't want to downplay it is is what I'm saying. Like, I think that there there are some people on the left who are like, it wasn't that big of a deal. And yeah. I don't agree. I don't agree with that at all. Yeah. Um, But, um, you know, br like a major mass like break into the Capitol building where people were uh like walking through with Confederate flags. That's fucking it was, scary. It was a big deal. It was the first time that someone did something inside of Nancy Pelosi's office, you know? That's right. <laughs> I love that. Um, yeah. Yas Queen. And yeah, I, I just think that, I mean, I have become so disdainful of, as we, as we all are, of the entire Democratic Party uh, leadership structure and i used to be i i gotta say i used to be a lot harder on chuck schumer and now i just my goal is i just want nancy pelosi to be replaced because yeah. she wow. is uh she has shown herself to be so completely out of step with the base of the demo not only just the base of the democratic party but like even even some of the more like just center left people in the Democratic Party, like she is still more regressive than them. Um, I think I, I'm still not over the fact that she did not support um, forbidding members of Congress and their spouses from trading stocks. I think that is so fucked. It's not even funny. I think when the again, when the Pod Save America guys are not on your side anymore, it's time to jump ship. Uh, God, I haven't I thought about those guys in a while, actually. I think I have them all muted for my own health. Well, I, I mean, like, I, I think it's I, I uh, they come up on my feed sometimes. And and I am pleased to see that they are. Uh, they are pretty critical of uh some of them are pretty critical of the dem leadership not your dan pfeiffer's or your your john favreau's but certainly uh i think tommy vitor who has always been i think more politically the more politically okay than uh than some of the well, other i don't ones. know though because he was the um wasn't he the press secretary for like the state department or something so he your was, man was out there like uh justifying the drone strikes you no, know i know i know yeah. I mean, yeah, for sure. But he also, I, I have to say, I, you know, credit where credit is due. He did have like very early on in his, in his like solo project, he had Glenn Greenwald and Mehdi Hassan on. Uh, so not that I like Glenn Greenwald. I want to be clear that I don't, but I just think that it's, it's worth noting. Anyways, I'm not going to defend Tommy Vito on this podcast. Like Glenn Greenwald. I actually think that Glenn Greenwald might be the greatest reply guy of all time. Like he's. I mean, he put put him up in the history books for sure. He's uh, his jersey is hanging from the rafters. He is. <laughs> yeah, I. Uh, I mean, I, I can't. I, I can't admire his choice to not be happy. You know. I, 
I know. I think about we talked about this before, I think, that he has like a beautiful life. He is this like gorgeous house, a beautiful husband, and he is just furious all day, every day, tweeting up a storm from his beautiful mansion with all of his rescue dogs. It's insane. I mean, yeah, it's oh my god, he was going off on the the big testing industry this week. <laughs> promoting COVID tests. Man, I don't know, but tw- I mean, for myself, like personally, in 2022, I'm gonna try to make this my uh, lowest internet use year yet because I was thinking about it, and I feel like logging on every day for like you know multiple hours a day to a place where the news is just really terrible all day. You know, people are losing their minds, and I've seen the consequences of this in my own own life you know mm-hmm. like just people just um you know just posting terrible news and then every once in a while i'll get a break from the terrible news to see something about like my ex-boyfriend whose semen is a meme i can't believe i go on this website every day for free like, <laughs> is paying me to do this <laughs> oh my god i need to f- wait i need to find the tweet i need to find the other the tweet but there was the funniest tweet i saw yesterday where someone said stop saying this website is free it extracts a terrible toll <laughs> 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 and it's so true it's at what cost i have been reading um like novels more i've just been like really making it a point to read a book every part of my book every day and what it's is that like for you <laughs> making me happier can you believe it no but it is i don't know yeah, I'm, I'm stoked yeah I've, I've, i read some books over uh the winter break and it was it was it was really nice i definitely feel like my i feel my brain getting better from um just actually yeah just like reading actually it's it's a good way to to center um can i tell you about the interview that we have this week i would love that so the interview this week was really cool um i met this guy um his name is andres bernal and he was one of the policy advisors for aoc um and worked on the green new deal hell yeah and um specifically he is a professor of economics that uh works with modern the uh modern monetary theory group like the the academic group that Mm -hmm. sort of came up with and is promoting this idea a lot of people know stephanie kelton um of the deficit myth and um i was just like can you come on the show and give us a little primer of what mmt is and how it works so a lot of people are probably pretty familiar with mmt um just at least what it is um but basically you know it's leftist economics Mm -hmm. pretty much like you know one of the i mean basically like the idea that the government the federal government's budget is not like a household budget because right. they produce the currency. So, mm-hmm. you know, actually like the idea that, you know, we have to have like a, a balanced budget and, you know, no deficit, like this is, that's actually not what's constraining us. And uh, that's way oversimplified, but I got the chance to go into it in detail with Andres, which I really appreciated that opportunity because I think that, um, it's just, um, yeah, for myself, I'm not someone that really knows a lot about economics. Uh, but, uh, there are people who do, if you can't believe that. And it's, you know, definitely a profession that's been really dominated by the right wing neocons. Yeah. Neocons, neolibs, the like fucking, you know, Milton Friedman mm-hmm. ideas of, you know, uh, trickle down and all that shit for, you know, years and years and years. And, I, I think, you know, that more people throughout society are becoming aware of like, oh, this idea that, you know, we have to, you know, if we have to pay for everything, you know, with taxes and um, we have to, you know, have like a, a balanced budget. Um, I think more people are becoming aware of like, mm, there might be like more, more to it. Like these, these ideas are, they're not neutral. They are political um and 
you know, often uh, tools for, you know, capital to continue to exploit workers. And if we want to provide health care to everyone, we actually can do that. If we yeah. want to take meaningful climate action, we actually can do that. It was great to to talk to him about how. I'm so excited. I also don't, I, you know, uh, I'm not as well versed in economics as I would like to be. I just uh, really, like to myself, the thing I was most worried about on this episode is like, I felt like a, my like internalized sexism towards myself where I was like, oh my God, I'm such a dumb bitch. You know, <laughs> I'm a, people I, like, I feel like math Barbie of like math is hard. But then math like, is hard. Yeah. Well, I didn't want to feed into the stereotype of like, this kind of stuff is like hard for the ladies. But then I was like, dude, there's no reason I should know about economics. Like that's yeah. not, I was an English major. Like I'm a fucking theater dork. You yeah. Know? Um, but yeah, no, there was a, it was, it was a really good discussion and listeners, when you hear me stumbling and being confused, please know that it has nothing to do with my gender. I'm just dumb. That's right. (laughs) And you know what? That's the final step of being empowered. Yeah. Um, (laughs) all right. So, uh, please enjoy this interview with Andres Bernal. Um, and, uh, Patreon listeners, thank you so much for uh, supporting us, even as the, the we haven't put out an episode recently. Um, we're going to record one right now. So we'll That's see you right. later this week. Bye. Just listen to Reply Guys. Hello and welcome back to Reply Guys. I am here with uh, Andres Bernal, who is a fellow at the Global Institute for Sustainable Prosperity, a CUNY lecturer and a policy advisor formerly with AOC and now with Neil Walia in Colorado's first district. And um, I'm really excited today to talk to Andres about modern monetary theory, which is something that um, I've been reading about, but I, you know, I just don't, <laughs> I've, I, I don't really know a lot about like economic theories because for some reason, like I've just had, you know, the idea that that's like somehow really hard to understand but i'm gonna see if (laughs) we can have a conversation that makes this more accessible for those of us that might not you know be super deep in the weeds but want to understand what's happening in leftist economics these days welcome to the show so happy to be here okay so let's start with the super super basics what is mmc Cool. So MMT is a framework or a lens um, to have a better, more accurate understanding uh, of the way that a macro economy works. Um, It has a descriptive component, which is kind of saying, you know, most of the ways that people talk about or, you know, conventional economists talk about um, the macro economy is not accurate. Um, And so MMT provides a lens to understand the way things are working, the way money works in that macro economy and its different institutions. And then from there, uh, a number of prescriptive possibilities open up uh, about what we can do uh, with with money, specifically with public money um, in in the terms of policy. So, okay, Um, how is MMT different than how economics is, is typically talked about? Because usually when people bring up the economy, like pundits, politicians, it's it's usually as like a, you know, as a way of saying that we can't afford to do stuff for people that is really necessary. Yeah, yeah. definitely. So most conventional economics is premised on this idea that an economy begins with markets and trade, and that's kind of like the natural state of everything. And then out of that, uh, you get money because, you know, it's like more efficient or it reduces what, what they call transaction costs and things like that. But but it's really just a kind of passive uh, representation of the real stuff, which is trade for, you know, your conventional uh, e- economist. And so they view money as a finite, scarce thing. Uh, sometimes they even, you know, say that money only has worth if, if it's uh, if it's scarce and finite or backed by some kind of metal like gold or something like that. Right. Depends on who you're talking to. Uh, but at the end of the day, you know, it, there's pretty much agreement that a government is just like a household. And if you know, if, if you and I have to 
balance our budgets and be careful with the way we, we, we spend, uh, then the government does too. And so they're kind of always, most economists are uh, mindful and worried about, to different degrees, um, you know, what the deficit is and if we're going to go broke and if we're spending too much. And there's this big conversation around um, how are we going to pay for the things we want. And MMT kind of turns that upside down and, you know, opens up that conversation to an entirely new paradigm based on the premise that money is not finite. Um, it's not scarce. It, in fact, it's not a thing at all. It's not a, a kind of like a unit, uh, like, a, like a chit or some kind of piece of something at all. It's a, it's a public governance instrument and it always has been. It's a way that um, societies coordinate things uh, in an economy um, based on debts and obligations and the law. And so when you understand that, MMTers uh, argue that um, a, a entity, any kind of authority, right? In this case, we can talk about the United States federal government, right? If you issue your own currency, right? If you have some kind of law that says this agency or this authority issues this uh, currency or unit of account, therefore it has an infinite capacity uh, to, to, to spend that unit of account. And the only constraint on it is um, the availability of resources or the capacity of your economy, which translates into uh, various forms of inflation. Uh, so MMT basically argues that the whole conversation around how are we going to pay for things is completely absurd and just irrelevant and a political imprisonment, an ideological imprisonment on what's possible. So the most recent example that I can think of of you know this in action is Rashida Slabe wanting to print the trillion dollar coin right like you know and just like we actually uh, if we don't have uh, enough quote unquote I guess money for uh, you know, taking care of people during the pandemic then we should just make more money print more money so is that basically like is that basically how this works well, so it's, it, you know, maybe if we can take a step back um, before we get to that very important proposal by by uh, Congresswoman Taib's um, office. So one of the things that that MMT changes about the conversation is that instead of a, of a currency issuer, as we say, like the United States federal government, having to find money through taxes or through borrowing or anything like that, um, it emphasizes that all the money already comes from the government anyways. It doesn't need to find money from, from anything. So instead of the conventional notion that uh, government taxes first or borrows and then it spends, it turns that upside down. It actually says um, for any, any uh, society where there's a currency issuer, first someone needs to spend the money <laughs> for the money to come from somewhere. It, it, otherwise, where does it come from, right? And then you tax that out, then you can do other kinds of policies or whatnot. So the order is different. And when you understand that, you kind of see that the whole printing money conversation is, is a little misleading because it, it makes us believe that uh, if there's no money, then we can do the special trick and print it. And it's not really how that works. I mean, first of all, um, like very little money these days is printed anyways, right? Most of the time you just go on a computer, uh, the Congress will pass a bill, the Treasury will then order the Federal Reserve to go on a computer and mark up accounts. And that's all that happens. Right. Um, and so in the case of, of Rashida Tayyip's ABC Act, Automatic Boost to Communities Act, as a response to the pandemic, you know, we were talking about quarantining and the potential economic collapse and depression that we that we could get. Uh, from that again. So some colleagues of mine who, um, who we, we are part of an organization called the Modern Money Network, um, they were working with uh, her office to come up with a plan to get $2,000 into everybody's, um, you know, everybody's hands on a monthly basis to get through the pandemic and be able to successfully quarantine. So when this question came up, uh, well, right, how are you going to pay for it? Instead of having this ongoing debate about the debt, about the deficit, uh, my colleagues brought back this idea that kind of became popular during the Obama era for a while, where somebody discovered a, a part of the law with the U.S. Mint that basically says that the U.S. Mint has the ability to mint a coin of whatever value it wants. 
And um, <laughs> this kind of just brings back this idea that money is a, is a creature of law. It's a kind of law. It's a governance instrument. So we kind of found this thing uh, through the mint to say if we need like $2 trillion quick or however trillion, just mint the coin. And uh, that became hashtag mint the coin. So it was kind of like a part of a, a policy um, agenda and hashtag uh, to quickly, you know, open up our imaginations to what was possible. So, okay, the, I, I, it definitely seems like the kind of dominant thinking, and and I'm just gonna sound probably like a you know like someone who doesn't know anything because I really don't know much about anything in um in economics, but it seems like this kind of like um you know a trickle down idea has been mostly the predominant one for a while. Um, and, uh, Milton Friedman's whole terrible thing. Um, it seems like that is, it's sort of a more recent development because, you know, great depression and, um, for some time after it seemed like there, people thought that it was a really, really good idea for the government to be spending, lots and lots of money and that that made the economy better um is is, is this kind of like you know it, it, it seems like there's more flexibility i guess in like the the people sort of tend to think about economics in terms of like paradigms that often change whereas people feel like it's sort of a, a set thing the way it gets talked about at a, at a given moment in time absolutely during the Great Depression and then through the Second World War, there was certainly a very big paradigm shift and there were debates that were being had um, that were much different and much more radical than than what we're having today. Um, a lot of the influence of John Maynard Keynes as his ideas were developing and whatnot and other you know, progressive and even more radical economists were emphasizing that you know, as to respond to the depression, there was really no time to think about how are we going to pay for this stuff, right? Or to go into World War II and mobilize the U.S. economy to to, to contribute to the fight against Nazism and fascism. Um, this 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 ridiculous debate wasn't even being had. We just spent the money, um, and and again, it brings back this idea that when the government wants to spend, it can just spend, and we still do that now with the kind of bloated military-industrial complex. Nobody asks that question. Um, so uh, as a response to the Great Depression, we started spending money. People started to pressure FDR about, okay, you sp you've spent enough, let's cut back, let's try to balance the budget now, and interestingly enough, um, after we started recovering, we went back into, we slid back into a bit of a recession um, um, and and I, I would argue that that was because Roosevelt was pressured into starting to cut back on some of that spending too soon. Um, but it was really World War II that helped the United States get totally out of any state of, of uh, economic problems by mobilizing production in a way we really hadn't seen before. Um, and we had all kinds of very interesting policies to manage uh, inflation because we had our economy um, you know, at a very close to full employment level at that time. Um, and we've kind of given up on a lot of that because, you know, fast forward through the, the 70s, a lot of these ideas started getting appropriated into the orthodoxy. And then, um, you know, we didn't know how to respond to the OPEC crisis. And then Milton Friedman kind of, as you mentioned, and the whole neoliberal gang came out. And one of the core things that they argued is that, uh, the most important thing you can do policy wise is to control and cut back on the money supply. And they came up with this whole thing called the um, quantity of money theory, where um, it kind of just argued that if there's too much money in the economy, it loses its value. And we still hear that today um, to a large extent that people feel like, oh, no, you know, we're printing money. It's going to somehow the dollars just going to these pieces of paper are just going to like be worth nothing now. And, you know, they'll bring up Weimar Germany or Zimbabwe or, yeah, or things the, like that. The barrels, the, the wheelbarrows full of money that couldn't even buy you a loaf of bread, you know? Right, right, yeah. right. And, and so kind of it really reduces that conversation to, well, you see what happens when you spend too much when really there are all these political, uh, you know, Context around those countries like losing a war <laughs> and, uh, you know, a brutal fight for independence and, and, and like even a genocide in the case of Zimbabwe. Right. Um, so 
MMTers kind of bring back to the conversation the importance of thinking about resources, about the kind of political design of your economy, uh, all those sorts of things instead of just like uh, a very crude sense of like, well, too much money, it's not worth anything. So how does like um how does inflation actually work like to me it, i think i mean i'm probably so like the only time i've ever learned about inflation like has been a very traditional way of thinking about it basically that like you know if people have more money then everyone raises prices businesses all raise prices and then you know basically just stuff costs more and you know it hopefully the amount of money that people have kind of keeps pace with it is that but you're i think you're saying that's not actually like what inflation is and it's not an inevitability yeah yeah i think it's a much it's a lot more complex than that but it is very common for everybody across the ideological board to uh, to some degree, believe that standard story of inflation. Even the left, uh, unfortunately, I think even I've even heard many Marxists kind of concede to this theory of, of inflation too, which is kind of interesting. Um, but uh, I- instead of thinking that that money, if people have more money, it's just going to be worthless and, and um, prices are automatically going to go up like some kind of law of gravity or something like that, uh, MMT really broadens the conversation and number one focuses on this distinction that we call this uh, stocks and flows, right? So it's not about having money, but what you do with it, um, which is spend that money. And then there's this conversation about what are you spending on? And do we have the resources or the capacity to absorb or respond to that spending? Um, and that's a conversation about about whether our economy is at full employment or not, right? So, if 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 there's if people have a lot of money and they're out there spending, can businesses you know respond with with things that people need? The argument a lot of MMTers make is that the answer most of the time is we have way more capacity than people think we do, um, or that we use usually, um, and that it's actually quite rare that this kind of consumer demand um, response is what causes inflation. There's, there's other causes too. And thinking about the current pandemic is a great example of when um, consumer demand is actually not the, the force pushing prices up the most. What is pushing prices up right now, actually? Right, so we closed down the economy, we, we locked down, and then we opened up again very quickly. And this is uh, this has caused all kinds of supply shocks where the kind of response to this close and opening um, has caused issues like we've seen these ports that have been jammed up. Um, We've seen infrastructure that's not available. So another big problem is just like the United States being very bad at uh, having good infrastructure. Um, Every supply chain relies on infrastructure, relies on public infrastructure, right? Like this is something that socialists and the left are always emphasizing, right? Um, When that doesn't exist, this has uh, consequences. And then just the fact that our supply chains are so internationally interconnected that if we're not getting vaccines out to the rest of the world and people are dying who are at the front lines, well, that is also going to jam up supply chains. Uh, So this has nothing to do with like or at least very little to do with people having too much money and we just, you know, it's just losing its value. Actually, it's the fact that we haven't responded correctly to the pandemic. And instead of thinking, well, let's reduce the money in the economy so that things can stabilize. Actually, the the, the, the correct response is to spend more, but spend more intelligently, right? To spend more on getting vaccines out to the rest of the world and opening up those international intellectual property rights, to spend more on infrastructure, to, you know, coordinate uh, more um, administrative capacity to be able to overcome these supply chain issues. Then there's the issue, of course, of price gouging and many corporations that just have so much market power um, and they've been controlling many of these markets for so long that they can they can just push costs onto consumers and charge whatever they want. And uh, we don't have very good regulations for that. So inflation is coming from there as well. And in fact, here in the US, you know, some of the primary 
um, sectors of inflation are, you know, healthcare, housing, energy, food, education, right? And we know how notoriously those are controlled by these kind of greedy private actors. Uh, so there's another cause. So first of all, I have to be honest, I do kind of wish I took shrooms before this conversation because I do. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like it would increase my capacity to... Um, I don't know. I mean, we're, I'm just thinking as you're talking about like how sort of like indoctrinated um, we are all like as a society and thinking about money in a really specific certain way. When I was growing up in the 90s, it was, you know, a lot of a lot of talk about the deficit, particularly in, you know, when Bill Clinton was president um, and, you know, just this idea that like we th the budget has to be balanced. I know that there's like a lot of, you know, a lot of Republicans and also Democrats who have really, really pushed that idea. Um, I guess that leads to my next question, um, which what is a household budget? Kind of joking. I'm a comedian and I get paid in drink tickets a lot <laughs> of the time. But um, so basically, like, I think that the, the crux of this is it seems to me like layperson's understanding is that just the rules that like apply to you know how like i for example think about money on an on an individual level you know which is that like i get paid a certain amount from gigs or whatever and then like that's how much money i have to spend like it's just it's a fundamentally different way for the the government than for like literally anyone else and even for the federal government even they have a, a different set of you know possibilities than even even state governments yeah yeah, absolutely. Uh, the first thing I'll say is that I, I think since I got into MMT around 2016, 2017, much of it was out of, I felt a lot of desperation because of Trump's election and just feeling like we didn't have, you know, a vision, a macro vision to get over this kind of neoliberal hellhole that we were in. And, and the right was kind of, uh, has been rising because they were providing these horrible responses to that inadequacy. Um, so I, I've, I've kind of felt like I've been on an ongoing shroom trip, just a slow one, ever since I got into MMT. But um, yes, the the 101 kind of response is that we need to differentiate currency users like you and I or household budgets or even businesses from currency issuers, which is like entities that are in charge of, of getting this unit of account into the system or credit uh, in the first place. And, and those are not the same things. Um, so it's just a totally different mechanism. So while you and I should balance our budget, um, the federal government needs to balance the macro economy. And that has nothing to do with its own budget. That has to do with like, you know, are people, uh, have, do people have healthcare? Are, do people have good jobs? Are there huge environmental crises? Like that's a, that's a macro economy and that's much different, right? So the roles are, are, um, very different. When a federal government uh, or a currency issuing, because, you know, some countries are not currency issuers, like uh, countries in the European Union gave up this capacity when they joined the EU. So when people like compare the U.S. to Greece, that's just completely nonsensical because Greece does not have their own their own currency anymore. But anyways, um, when the U.S. government spends the amount of money that it's that's in the economy, that it spends into the economy that has not yet been taxed back, right? So that difference between spending and then taxing some of it out, that difference is the deficit. So in kind of like, it's called sectoral balances, but in a kind of mirror effect, the federal government's deficit is the private economy's surplus. And that, that for me, that was like the first thing that blew my mind, right? Because the whole 90s, we were obsessed with balancing the budget and Bill Clinton was like, I have a surplus, but if the federal government's in a surplus, that means it's taxed back more money that it's spent in. That means we as a private economy are in a deficit. And a lot of the problems that led up to the financial crisis were part of Bill Clinton's surplus. I mean, consumers were driven to look for credit cards and private credit from banks because fiscal policy wasn't doing shit. And 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 Clinton and, and with the help of Republicans and, and, you know, the establishment was cutting back on a lot of very important public programs and even a, a vision of investing in jobs and things like this. Um, so starving the economy of 
fiscal responses and money, public money for public purposes, it, that will achieve a surplus, but that will be very, very bad for, you know, the things that are very important. And it hits and it's always historically hit marginalized communities the hardest. So you will see when we start getting a surplus or balancing our budget or anything like that, you will see black unemployment start to rise. You will see, you know, immigrant communities start to feel more and more abandoned. Um, you know, women, all of these kind of social groups that have been historically excluded from participation in, 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 in uh, some kind of dignified, productive life. Things get worse and worse and worse. And, and that kind of brings up a, a much deeper theoretical political point about the role of money, which is that public infrastructure and public money is vital uh, to reorganize and redesign what economic life is like. And without it, you get a lot of groups that get excluded and basically abandoned. So where did this theory originate? How did it come to be? Okay, so around the time that Keynes was becoming a big deal and a lot of the economic paradigm had changed, there were debates in economics about what to do with this. A, a lot of these ideas were uh, internalized or you know co-opted or what do you you know whatever you want to word you want to use into the orthodoxy, and and that's what we call like the new Keynesians today. So if you think of like Krugman and Summers and a lot of these people, they'll call themselves Keynesians. But, um, you know, if you kind of look into the academic literature, like a very famous economist called this bastard Keynesianism. Um, and, and so even the way we talk about it in public is, is kind of really screwed up. So there were there was this other group of, of folks um, who were not mainstream, who had deeper critiques of economic theory and economic assumptions in general. Uh, we call these today heterodox economists. They were trying to take the best of Keynes. They were looking at ideas from Marx. They were looking at Veblen. They were looking at all of these institutionalists, all these different people. Um, and from there, a group called the Post-Keynesians emerged. Um, different folks with, uh, with ideas about the economy that were not getting into the mainstream. So f uh, fast forward into like the 90s. Uh, a number of people kind of started talking who had the same ideas one of which is is this uh, man named Warren Mosler, who actually worked in a hedge fund and on Wall Street. And he has a very interesting story because he saw it like first, uh, he, he just saw it empirically that the way people were talking about deficits and the debt was not true at all. Um, and he actually <laughs> convinced the government of Italy at the time before they had joined the, the EU to not default uh, on their <laughs> their debt, they were going to default. He actually went there and spoke with like the finance minister, and he was just like, "What are you all doing? Like that's crazy. You you have your own currency. Don't do that." So he's kind of a hero uh, to a lot of Italians for <laughs> for doing that because nothing happened. They they just you know uh, it was fine. So he start he kind of connected with with some other economists, uh, Randy Ray, uh, you know Bill Mitchell, and some other people, um, and they brought together a lot of these ideas and started forming this economic framework um, that isn't just one person or one idea, but it's it's a kind of a synthesis of, of, of different things, such as functional finance, which is the idea that, uh, as we talked about, a government doesn't need to balance its budget, it should balance the economy. Um, the, the idea of, uh, um, you know, a, a different approach to interest rates, um, a different understanding of inflation, as we talked about, and the job guarantee, which is another very important part of MMT, which is to say conventional economists think that full employment means there's always going to be unemployed people. And they have all these fancy mathematical equations to show you always have to have unemployed people. There's a natural rate of unemployment. And if you get, if you get unemployment too low, you'll get inflation automatically. Um, you know, this is total bullshit because it, again, disproportionately hurts very particular communities. And even right now, when they're like, we should raise interest rates next year to slow down this inflation, that's going to throw people out of work. Um, so MMTers were like, no, uh, full employment means full employment. And if money comes from the government, from the federal government as a constitutional authority, 
Therefore, if there's unemployment, it's the government's fault for not employing those people because money creates work. You pay people to do things. It's a coordinating mechanism. Uh, So they came up with this idea of the job guarantee, basically saying if you cannot find work in the private sector, which structurally is not interested in full employment, you know, capitalists or private profit seeking uh, entities are not interested in employing everybody. So therefore, uh, the public sector should step up and make it a right for you to have a job doing some kind of, uh, you know, community and socially important, valuable things that don't get invested in by capitalists or private actors, et cetera, um, at, with benefits uh, at a living wage. And at first it was kind of talked about like an employer of last resorts, but we have like a new generation of MMTers that I would say I'm kind of a part of. It's been it's seen the rise of Stephanie Kelton as the most vocal uh, intellectual, Pavlina Cherniva and some other folks. And and, and we're really taking um, these original MMT ideas and also combining them with a lot of social justice thinking as well. Um, and it's not just an employer of last resort, but it's for us, it's actually changing work altogether, transforming what we mean by work, uh, making work something that is not exploitative or alienating and being part of that, that process. I think this leads really well into what the impact of this could potentially be on the ability to, you know, do something like the Green New Deal, which is a policy that uh, a lot of leftists really care about, and even people who are not leftists uh, who just want to be able to live on the planet, you know? Um, yeah. So, <laughs> like, um, you know, I think. So in order, like, I know you, you worked a bit on the Green New Deal. Um, I mean, the critique of it, like the immediate way that it's shut down, one of the immediate ways it's shut down is like way too expensive. Um, There's obviously like a lot of people who, you know, have other just you know, like coal is great or whatever, but like, fuck those people. Let's talk about people. (laughs) Let's talk about people right now who like, you know, believe that climate change is real, that it's a problem, want to do something about it, um, you, you know, and just feel like, oh my God, that's way too much money. Like, how how can we as a society get beyond the thinking that, you know, we just can't afford to do this, this very uh, important thing that is like fundamental to human life on earth? Yeah, it, it, it's absolutely vital. Um, I, I really do not think we can successfully implement a Green New Deal without MMT as a framework uh, for several reasons. The first one is, of course, the, the transformation and the mobilization has to be so massive that if we stall with these questions about where to find the money and not being able to do anything unless we have like, you know, a, you know one for one exchanges of taxes for spending or anything like that. It's not only going to slow us down, but it's not going to um, allow us to accurately like understand what's really required here, which is the structural dimensions of creating a totally renewable energy economy. Yeah, that has nothing to do with where you're going to find the money. That's about like where are you going to find the lithium? How are you going to do that without totally devastating communities? Um, how do you get an energy grid that can have the batteries and, and hold that solar energy and, and you know all, all of these que- these are engineering capacity questions right then there's the question of like how do you uh, employ people to do this how do you transition people out of the fossil fuel economy into this uh, all of these questions if we give Medicare for all to everybody how do we make sure that we have enough hospitals doctors etc to respond to this uh, d- increase in demand for healthcare? Um, canceling student debt, all of these things are, are a vital part of this. Um, and so this requires us to change our paradigm about how we think about investment and, and money altogether. Uh, I think a second very important problem with the conventional approach that is more common around leftists and progressives is the purpose of taxing the rich. And, and this is kind of like a hotly controversial part that a lot of leftists sometimes get angry at MMTers for or accuse us of not wanting to tax the rich. And there's a very, there's a qualitative distinction that we make about why we should tax the rich. So 
we want to decouple completely our spending from any taxation on the rich because you don't need to, right? We can just increase the deficit, et cetera. If we are like, we can't spend on anything unless Elon Musk gives us two, $2 trillion or whatever, two billion, I don't know, whatever. Um, we have to kind of depend on them to continue funding us so that people could have healthcare. Uh, so that creates a problem in that I guess they have to stay rich. Another example is if, uh, you know, Bernie had the the um, tuition-free public education policy and he said, I'm going to pay for this with a tax on uh, Wall Street speculation. I, I thought we were trying to get rid of Wall Street speculation. If we're going to premise tuition-free public education on this screwed up thing that they do on Wall Street, uh, I don't want our public education to depend on that. Uh, so, so there's problems there. Um, and then secondly, as I mentioned, it doesn't get to kind of this resource question of like, do we have the capacity? So MMTers are like, tax the hell out of Elon Musk and Bezos and all these people because they are ruining democracy. They have too much money. This is just a moral issue. It's bullshit. Like that shouldn't exist. But don't wait for them to give us money to, to take action on creating new institutions, spending on all these public things, because what happens is, and I think this is a very important point, when we spend on public things, we shift the use of resources that usually is being co-opted by private banks or capitalists. We employ people to do different things. So those people are no longer doing what, you know, all these other, they're not looking for jobs in some kind of bullshit corporate setting. Uh, that starts to shift the economy already so that the wealth doesn't go to these capitalists in the first place. And I think that's a big structural difference that has to do with like rethinking how we approach these problems. Um, so in, in my Green New Deal research and advocacy, I'm very much for um, changing the way that we approach social transformation and getting out of this like tax to spend narrative um, that I think is totally imprisoning the left and not allowing us to really see like the big picture. So Green New Deal, we need to use our resources to the fullest capacity. It might be the case that we will get to full employment when we're trying to go 100% renewable and have some inflationary pressure. At that point, that's when we can start thinking about, you know, should we use credit controls and not allow private banks to, I don't know, give, give credit to create some golf course or a casino? Uh, should we tax a little bit at that point to take money out of the economy, right? These are the questions that come up uh, that are different from the way we usually think about things. It's, you know, I'm just struck in this, in this conversation. Like, I mean, it feels like, um, it feels like there are, you know, I'm optimistic in one way because it, it does sound like there are a lot of potential solutions to things that we are always uh, told are completely unsolvable. But, you know, on the other hand, <laughs> it does feel like kind of an uphill battle because, I mean, for a lot of reasons, but, you know, like this idea of like tax and spend, the deficit, I mean, there's just like, I mean, that is just so promoted by think tanks, politicians, media. I mean, makes sense because you know thinking about the economy money in another way would dramatically reduce the power of capital so yeah but i mean you know in terms of like uh people sort of getting on board with a way of thinking about money that's really different from everything that we've been taught you know i know that you're not um like a a propagandist or anything you're an academic but like what what's the kind of like what's the hope in the mmt community um you know some of the hope has come from just seeing firsthand the way that mmtiers were ridiculed uh or laughed at at first and then just people respond really hostile to us and slowly but surely everything is just coming true the way we, we said it would, or, or a lot of our um, predictions or descriptions of things are turning out to be accurate. Um, you know, when we, uh, when we spent money to respond from the pandemic, um, nobody asked where that money was going to come from. We just spent it. And lo and behold, it, 
reduce child poverty by 40 percent um you know and and that was that so um that i think that gives us some hope i think little by little we see a lot of the more mainstream economists slowly start to like appropriate MMT ideas and and being like, I just had a revelation. I think it works this way. And then they kind of all clap for each other. Meanwhile, like to us, it's obvious. They just like took one of our major ideas. Um, So, you know, that's happening. So that's kind of hopeful. The, the, The second really hopeful thing is, you know, I think coming from this new generation of MMTers, um, and and I and I'm I'm proud to consider myself include myself in this that we want to make um, build relationships and coalitions with social movements and be like look MMT gives us this framework it changes the way we understand money it changes what we can do let's integrate this into racial justice um, uh, you know. Uh, economic justice unions, right? Like we've collaborated and worked a lot with Sarah Nelson, who's a fantastic labor leader. Yeah, great, um, great follow also. Yeah, on Twitter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> totally. Um, climate activists, all of all of these uh, folks. So, you know, I'm very hopeful in that MMT is increasingly moving away from being understood as just like some technical economic stuff to really being like, oh, wow, when you change the way we think about money, uh, you you can change the world. It, it it's just about organizing and our creative ideas at that point. Um, I'm a very big advocate for getting over a lot of you know seemingly like some binaries or oppositions when in fact they should be complementary. So you know as an example, um, people talk about should we focus on class or should we focus on race? And a lot of that comes from very reductive zero sum assumptions about what's more real race or class. Um, when we understand the way so much of politics depends on um, institutions and infrastructure that actually gets designed, um, you know, from democratic processes, um, you can see that it's both. You can do both and they, they connect with one another. Um, and, and so that kind of really opens opens things up for me um, in, in very important ways. So, yeah, so working with social movements, um, with people that are invested in in changing what work means, in providing support for for things that are very important. Um, of course, there's the big gender issue of uh, so much um, work that goes unpaid that women perform in this economy and increasingly immigrant women perform in an economy. Um, I think the job guarantee gives us an opportunity to really, really engage with that issue, uh, you know, in things like providing universal childcare, like really opening up um, these spaces where people have been locked into boxes that uh, don't have a lot of social support or infrastructure uh, to do things differently. So uh, yeah, that, that all gives me some hope. Well, it has been so good talking to you. Where can our listeners find you? on social uh you can find me on twitter okay cool uh on i love it there uh, (laughs) it's it's an interesting it's an interesting place (laughs) yeah speaking of reply guys um you know we we have a lot of those in the mmt community but um uh yeah you can find me on twitter at andres in theory and uh i guess instagram as well and i just published a piece for the global institute of sustainable prosperity going into some of the details about um, the, the current price increase issues that we're seeing um, due to the pandemic. Um, so you can check out that working paper as well. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening to Reply Guys. If you like the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Reply Guys, where we have a catalog of over 25 bonus interviews with renowned writers, journalists, and comedians with an additional episode uploaded each week. The show is hosted by Kate Willett and me, Julia Clare. Our producer is Genevieve Garrity. Our theme song was performed by Emily Fremgen, who wrote the song with Kate Willett. Our artwork is by Adrian Lobel. If you want to find us on Twitter, we're at Kate Willett with two L's and two T's. And I'm at OJuliaTweets, OHJuliaTweets. And Twitter is where you can, of course, also find our reply guys. They are always with us. Bernie, take us out.
walking that ribbon of highway, I saw above me that endless skyway. I saw below me that golden valley. This land was made for you and me. This land is your land. 